0: please pray with me. Heavenly Father, we thank you. There are so many things to be thankful for. We thank you for Autumn's daughter, Amber, her baby, the safe delivery of that. We pray that you would uh, keep that baby healthy, growing strong. Lord, we thank you for you being our Father. We thank you that you're not this aloof, out-of-touch being that's just out there somewhere. But Lord, you want to, you desire, you are passionate about knowing us intimately. You're passionate about us being restored to you so that you could fully be our Father. So you did the unthinkable and sent your own Son to the cross to die for our sins so that that could happen. Lord, you adopted us into your family so that we may know the riches of your love. That is just an incredible thought thank you that you are a father who does not leave us where you found us but Lord you are a father that teaches and corrects and disciplines and leads and provides for everything a perfect father should do and so much more Lord we thank you for your word that you do not let us go aimlessly through this life but you have given us your word that addresses every single topic or question we could ever have in this life. Thank you that it gives us answers. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. We've been exploring some pretty big topics lately. We explored what is prayer? What's going on when we pray? How do we pray? What is true faith? If you missed any of those messages, those are all up on our website and on our podcast. And as we jump back into our series on 1 Corinthians today, we're going to take a look at the big question why are we here? I don't mean just in this church building right now. Why are we here on earth? What is our purpose? That's a pretty big question in this world. Why are we here? Well, the answer varies greatly depending on who you're asking. Charles Schultz, the creator of the Peanuts cartoons, is quoted as saying, I don't know the meaning of life. I don't know why we're here. I think life is full of anxieties and fears and tears. It has a lot of grief in it. And it can be very grim. And I do not want to be the one who tries to tell somebody else what life is all about. To me, it's a complete mystery. That's a quote from Charles Schultz. That's a pretty dark statement from one who brought smiles to millions of people over the decades, isn't it? New Age physician Deepak Chopra says, why are we here? We exist not to pursue happiness, which is fleeting, or outer accomplishment, which can always be bettered. We are here to nourish the self. Atheist, biologist, and author Jerry Coyne writes, the way I find meaning is the way that most people find meaning, even religious ones, which is to get pleasure and significance from your job, from your loved ones, from your avocation, art, literature, music. People like me don't worry about what it's all about in a cosmic sense, because we know it isn't about anything. It's what we make of this transitory existence that matters. Life is the result of natural selection and death is the result of natural selection. We are evolved in such a way that death is almost inevitable. So you just deal with it. Astronomer, astrophysicist, and astrobiologist Carl Sagan, who promoted the search for extraterrestrial life, or SETI, wrote, the surface of the Earth is the shore of the cosmic ocean. On this shore, we've learned most of what we know. Recently, we've waded a little way out, maybe ankle deep, and the water seems inviting. Some part of our being knows that this is where we came from. We long to return, and we can, because the cosmos is also within us. We are made of star stuff. We are a way for the cosmos to know itself. On a lighter note, Apparently, if you ask Siri what is the meaning of life, Siri's response is all evidence to date suggests that it's chocolate. <laughs> I think Siri may be onto something there. If you ask the random person on the street, why are we here? You'd probably get the similar answers of to love others or be with family or to make a mark on the world. But the question is, are any of these answers the answer to the big question, why are we here? In response to anyone, including Charles Schultz, who says, I have no clue, the Apostle Paul actually gave a clear and concise answer to the question, why are we here, in his letter to the Corinthian church written almost 2,000 years ago. The answer is actually nestled within another question that the Corinthians had apparently asked him about, a question having to do with Christian liberty and how they should respond to a controversy within the church. This will be a, a two-part series. You see there part one on there. This will be a two-part series on this topic, with today being the fo- theological foundation for the practical application that Paul will prescribe for the situation, which we'll take a look at next week. So the first point that we come to uh, when we uh, work our way through these first few verses of chapter 8 is the issue. What's going on here? What Paul is addressing? Back in the time of Paul's writing, the Greek and Roman pantheon religions would sacrifice animals regularly to their gods. According to one biblical scholar, they would burn up the less desirable portions of those animal sacrifices and keep the more desirable portions for consumption, for them to eat. This meat was then either sold in the marketplace for personal consumption, served at personal celebrations or dinners, or outright enjoyed at a temple banquet after a, temple, after a pagan sacrifice. According to one biblical scholar, questions remained in the believer's minds. Should I have anything to do with eating meat from an animal sacrificed to a pagan deity, even if it's just meat that I bought at the marketplace, and I really don't know if it was sacrificial meat or not, or attend a dinner party with pagan friends who served meat, or even attend the wedding reception of pagan friends who hosted it at a temple and served this kind of meat? You can see the moral dilemma here. This is having to do with everyday life, real life. What complicated things further was that those who made up the Corinthian church who were Jewish in background regularly avoided eating with pagans for fear of accidentally consuming this type of meat and shopped for meat in their own Jewish markets. In fact, this was causing disunity within the church between those of Jewish background and those of Gentile background. Those who were poor in the Corinthian church dealt with this situation a lot less frequently, for they could not afford meat anyways, regardless of origin, and would only consume it for a special reason, a special occasion. Those who were in the higher social classes would deal with this much more frequently. The Corinthians apparently posed this question to Paul previously about what they should do about this and how they should handle it because Paul addresses this point blank and answers pretty much every question they could potentially have about it. And we'll work our way through that. And the very foundation of his answer also answers the big question, why are we here? So hang tight. We're going to address the contextual situation first. And then see how that very same foundation permeates all of life. So if you brought your Bible with you today, turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 8. If you didn't, that's okay. There should be one located in the pew in front of you. Please also turn to 1 Corinthians 8. I want everybody to see this together. Uh, If you're having trouble finding it, use the table of contents. It's all right. There's no shame in that. It's in the New Testament. Uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 1. And we read, Now concerning things sacrificed to idols, we know that we all have knowledge. Knowledge makes arrogant, but love edifies. One biblical scholar pointed out that the phrase all have knowledge in verse 1 may be Paul appropriating a well-known Corinthian phrase very similar to phrases we've already looked at if you remember our previous messages such as all things are permissible and food is for the stomach and stomach is for food. Do You remember the Corinthians spouting those off and using those as excuses for their immoral behavior. In that case, similar to the use of other Corinthian phrases, Paul is using this phrase all have knowledge to turn back around against them. No doubt some of the Corinthians were using this phrase against each other. All have knowledge. Many of the Corinthians were probably using the phrase all all have knowledge, to mean that they know idols are meaningless, and so there shouldn't be any problem eating meat sacrificed to these so-called gods because they didn't exist in the first place. Those who had a moral hang-up with it should just grow up and get over it in in their line of thinking. But Paul is using the phrase to say, hey, wait a second, it's not really all that simple. You can't just bulldoze over your brothers and sisters in Christ with a blanket statement, all have knowledge, and peer pressure them into feeling bad about their conviction. And so according to verse 1, yes, we all have knowledge. Specifically, we all have knowledge that the gods that the idols represent aren't real. But that's not the only thing we should be thinking about. Just Having that knowledge doesn't cut it when it comes to the unity of the church. In fact, according to verse 1, Paul says, just having theological knowledge and thinking you know what's best usually translates into what? He says it point blank in verse 1. Usually translates into what? Arrogance, right? That's what he usually translates into. That's huge. How many Christians just... Try to win arguments about things, even within the church. Now I want to be careful here. Neither Paul here, nor I, am saying that having solid biblical theology is not that big of a deal. It's a very big deal. But what is being said is that only thinking about that theology is only half of the equation. As Paul says here in verse 1, the other half is how it affects your brothers and sisters in Christ. And the love that goes with that. We all know it's detrimental to a brother or sister who is struggling with a certain sin or non-biblical theology by just telling them they're wrong and they need to get over it. How many here thinks that works? It's exactly part of what Paul is getting at elsewhere when he says, Instead, we will speak the truth in love. Growing in every way more and more like Christ, who is the head of his body, the church. Very similar to what he's saying here. So yes, the right knowledge, the biblical theology informs, but love is how we get it across. The two go hand in hand. You can't have one without the other. Likewise, you can't just have love. Love must be informed by biblical and correct theology. Now that flies in the face of many churches and their Pride Sundays this month. So what Paul is getting at here is that yes, we all have the knowledge that idols are meaningless, but the living of that knowledge out must be done in love towards our brothers and sisters. You can't just say, I know what the Bible teaches, so I'm just going to do what I want without any regard to how it affects your brothers and sisters. In fact, Paul shames that kind of thinking in verse 2. Read verse 2 with me. If anyone supposes that he knows anything, he is not yet known as he ought to know. But if anyone loves God, he is known by him. Again, having knowledge is only partial. Loving God is the other half of the equation. And by extension, that also means loving each other. Remember how I said at the, at the beginning of this series, the very beginning of this series in 1 Corinthians, I don't know if you can think that far back, that if anything could be said to describe many of the struggles the Corinthian church had, it was what? It was proud arrogance, right? Do you remember that? If there was anything that could be said to describe many of the struggles the Corinthian church had, it's proud arrogance. That once again comes through in what Paul has to begin to correct in these first few verses of chapter 8. Paul then goes on to confirm the biblical and sound theology that this knowledge is based on and we'll get to the loving application of it in the next section of chapter 8 which we'll cover next week. So we talk about the issue, the contextual issue that Paul is addressing here. Secondly, we're talking about the instruction. Paul doesn't want the Corinthians to think for one minute that the knowledge they have when it comes to idols and pagan deities they represented was wrong. He didn't want them to think that for one minute. That is not what he was questioning. They were going about applying it the wrong way, but the theology and knowledge they had was spot on. And that's what he wants to confirm first before he gets to the loving application. Paul wanted to confirm that and make sure they knew they could not compromise on that knowledge before he moves on to the application of it. Verse 4, he says, Therefore, concerning the eating of things sacrificed to idols, we know that there is no such thing as an idol in the world, and there is no God but one. So he confirms that. As one biblical scholar pointed out, a major Greek philosophy at the time, Stoicism, espoused that while there were many gods, there was one supreme God. Many Jewish apologists or defenders of Judaism would exploit this already entrenched pagan philosophy to connect to the Jewish Shema, the central statement in Jewish morning and evening prayers. It's the statement found in Deuteronomy 6.4. Here, here. O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is our God, the Lord is one. You can see very similar language to that in in verse 4 of chapter 8. So Paul's statement in verse 4 by itself, if you just took verse 4 by itself, would not raise many eyebrows. Even the polytheistic Roman Corinthians had heard it before, both from the Stoics and their fellow Jewish citizens. However, that was the basic statement that needed to be made in connection with idols, which was the central issue Paul was addressing. This was the most basic foundation, no matter how familiar it may have sounded. Idols hold no meaning since there is only one God, and even he made sure his people didn't even make an idol of and for him. That's number two of the Ten Commandments. Not only was God's people... To not have any gods ahead of him, but they also weren't supposed to make any idols. Paul says in Acts, He is the God who made the world and everything in it. Since he is Lord of heaven and earth, he doesn't live in man-made temples, and human hands can't serve his needs. Not, they don't need to. They can't. It's physically impossible for human hands to serve his needs. For he has no needs. He himself gives life and breath to everything and he satisfies every need. Because of that basic truth, any idol is completely meaningless because even the one true God does not need nor want an idol to worship him. As Jesus told the woman at the well, we worship God in spirit and truth. Paul goes on to say in verses 5 through 6, For even if there are so-called gods, whether in heaven or on earth, as indeed there are many gods and many lords, yet for us there is but one God, the Father, through whom are all things, and we exist for him. And one Lord Jesus Christ, by whom are all things, and we exist through him. He says even if there are tons of so-called, other so-called gods that people worship, as indeed there are, that doesn't matter. It doesn't matter if there's a sheer volume of tons of so-called other gods that other people worship. That does not matter. There is only one God and one Lord. This statement, while obvious to us as believers, is pretty radical in Paul's day. The Stoics didn't believe that. They still admitted that there were other gods in existence, just inferior to another supreme being. The Jewish people didn't believe that either. In Judaism, there was one God, and he was both God and Lord. That's what they affirm every day in their prayers. But Paul is putting forth something radical when it came to religion. Here, Paul is affirming two out of three members of the Trinity here as God. He's declaring that both the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ as God. That was radical in Paul's day. A prevailing Jewish belief was that, that God created the universe through his wisdom, and Paul is personifying that wisdom in the person of Jesus. It goes hand in hand with how the Apostle John opens his gospel in describing Jesus as the word or Wisdom. That kind of world that Paul is writing into almost 2,000 years ago has not changed. It has not changed. We, as believers in Jesus, still in a, live in a world where millions of people all around the world worship many and other gods. In Hinduism alone, there are 33 million deities. I don't know how they keep track of them all. Muslims worship Allah. Buddhists claim to worship no gods, but find enlightenment on their own, and one day become one with the universe, and in that way, they're their own god. The Jewish people still try to find their salvation and how how well they follow the law. Atheists try to answer everything through natural law, evolution, and scientific empiricism. It's a plethora of faiths that all contradict each other. That all contradict each other. To say they're all the same, you know what that is? That's lazy. To say they're all the same is simply lazy. One cannot study these faiths and actually and honestly come to that that answer. It's impossible. So how does a believer in Jesus navigate through all of this? By clinging to exactly what Paul writes in verse 6. And that's what we came, come to our third point, the intention. I want to read verse 6 again because that's what we'll focus the rest of our time on this morning. Yet for us there is but one God, the Father, from whom are all things, and we exist for him. And one Lord Jesus Christ, by whom are all things, and we exist through him. This right here, verse 6, is our foundation as believers in Jesus. And this, verse 6, is the answer in one verse to the big question, why are we here? Verse 6, one verse, is that answer to the big question, why are we here? It has nothing to do with making a mark. It has nothing to do with seeking to have a good life or even just being with our families. God is our creator. And so, as Paul says, we exist for him. We exist for If you never accomplish anything in this world but living a life pleasing to your creator, you have lived a good life. If you have accomplished nothing else in this world except living a life pleasing to your creator, you have lived a good life. See, that puts everything into a completely new perspective, doesn't it? It puts everything into a completely new perspective. If anyone who has earthly ambitions embraced that, there would be a whole lot less dysfunction and depression in the world. Everyone doing things for attention would see the futility and pointlessness of that kind of life. The only one we need to seek attention from already gives it to us on a daily basis without us having to earn it or work for it. It's a very simple answer and it frees us from all the pressures of this life. Simply living our lives to glorify our Father removes the pressure to have it all or have the coveted position or make the fatter paycheck or have the perfect family or anxiously making sure all our ducks are lined up in a row or fearing what will happen to us in this life. It removes all of the pressure from that. Simply living our lives to glorify our Father breathes life into everything we do. As Paul wrote to the Colossian church, whatever employment God has given to us is meaningful because A, God's the one who gave it to us, and B, we're really working for God, not for anyone else. In addition, we do the best we can in glorifying God by the way we raise our kids and leave the rest up to Him. Praying all the while for those kids. We glorify God by loving our spouses through God's love. We glorify God by handling our finances in a biblical and responsible way, knowing that he will provide for our every need. You see that? We don't earn God's provision. We don't earn God's salvation. And we do not earn God's sovereignty over our lives. You don't have to do a thing. We live our lives in light of the fact he's already doing that in the background because he's the one who saved us. We live our lives in glorification of him out of the love and gratitude for what he's already done for us, something that didn't even have anything to do with us. In short, knowing we've been put on earth for the Father and to glorify Him is lived out by seek the kingdom of God above all else and live righteously. He'll give you everything you need. You don't need to worry about it. All you need to focus on is seek the kingdom of God above all else and live righteously. And that's the difference. The difference between Biblical Christianity and every other faith that has ever existed. Every other belief says we need to be as good or peaceful or at one with the universe as possible for us to be rewarded. But Biblical Christianity teaches us that God the Father created us, and God the Son saved us, and God the Spirit has sealed us for our eternity. Nothing to do with us. Everything to do with Him. That frees us up to simply live out the rest of our days bringing glory to the Father. It's not focused on ourselves at all. That's an important important realization on this Father's Day as we think about our Heavenly Father. We live wholeheartedly for God knowing He's already taking care of us, knowing He already has a plan for us, knowing and trusting Him with that plan, leaving everything up to Him, and simply living lives according to His authority. It's that simple. We just like to complicate it. Oftentimes it's very difficult, though. Especially with how loud the world is and how painful our circumstances can be. But we're empowered to live this way Through Jesus and His Spirit. That's what we read at the end of verse 6. We know why we exist. And now we know how we are empowered to exist that way. We're empowered to live this way through Jesus and His Spirit. First of all, the only hope we have to live in this actual peace and in glory to the Father is through the death and resurrection of Jesus. That's the number one reason we even have that opportunity and that possibility. That sacrifice and resurrection is what opened the door for the Holy Spirit to call us to faith in God. Paul says at the end of verse six, that the one Lord, Jesus Christ, is by whom all thing, by, by whom all things exist, and we as believers exist through Him. Jesus not only provided the way for us to be connected to Almighty God, but He empowers us through the sending of the Holy Spirit to indwell us. The Holy Spirit then gives us the power to live the life glorifying to God and the peace that comes with living that life. As we've gone over time and time and time again, one cannot accidentally discover faith in God through human discovery or even human enlightenment. It cannot be given by the universe because the universe doesn't care either way. The universe doesn't care about you. Medication, self-medication, or self-help books can only go so far. The answer to why we, why we are, why are we here is inextricably connected to a reconciliation with Almighty God, won for us by the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, and a recognition that it has absolutely nothing to do with us or what we can do. This faith must and can only be given to us, We can't stumble across it. We cannot somehow discover it through self-enlightenment or some other human convention. It must be given to us. It's given to us as a gift by God himself. Why? Because he loves us. He loves us so much that the second person of the Trinity, Jesus, went to the cross to give it to us. Think about that. God did not wake up one day thinking, oh, I think I'll just kind of throw this at humans. No, he sent his one and only son, the second person of the Trinity, whom he had perfect communion and love with, down to earth to live as we live and to die a torturous and excruciating death so that we could be reconciled to him. Even our purpose in this world is not something that we come up with or can discover for ourselves or be enlightened to. Even that is given to us as a gift from God through answering the Holy Spirit's call to faith and salvation that could only come from Jesus. So, dispel the lies the world likes to very loudly scream at you. All of that is demonic in its source anyway. You might be thinking, oh, okay. I think we just crossed the line here, Pastor. That's a little extreme, don't you think? Not my words. On the original topic Paul is addressing, he says, I say that the things which the Gentiles sacrifice, they think they're sacrificing them to their Roman and Greek gods, but in reality, they're sacrificing to demons and not to God. And I do not want you to become sharers in demons. Let that sink in. This is why. Anything that distracts from, undermines, or outright stands against the true and undiluted and unadulterated gospel of Jesus Christ and its answer to the question, why are we here, is demonic in its source. God's word tells us that, not my words. If it was true for the Greek and Roman deities, it's just as true now. So no, not all beliefs are the same. Not all roads lead to heaven. The Bible flat out says that they're demonic. I know that's politically incorrect, but that's the truth. So embrace why you're here. If you're a believer in Jesus, your purpose is to glorify God out of love and gratitude for all He's already done, is doing, and will do in your life now and for eternity. There's no other purpose and it certainly has nothing to do with you. If you're not a believer in Jesus, kind of toying with it, going back and forth, If you're not a believer in Jesus, ask yourself the question. Honestly ask yourself the question, why am I here? I guarantee you that every answer you come up with will still be lacking for anything other than the eternal God will fail you. If you feel the Holy Spirit stirring inside of you to answer the call God is making to you to finally put your faith in salvation from your sin, found in nothing other than the death and resurrection of Jesus on your behalf, do it today, and as a byproduct, you will inherit an eternal purpose. I want to close out our time this morning by having all of us stand up and I want us to read this last verse together, verse 6. And I'm going to put it up on the screen here. And as we read it, let it sink in. Make it a declaration over your life, especially men here who are raising children or are, are not, not even if they're biological, but they're pouring their lives into, into the next generation. Fathers, grandfathers, mentors, and people who are pouring their life into the next generation. Especially, I want this to sink in. And I want all of us to read this together. Make this a declaration over your life. Take it with you, and make it who you are today. Let's read it. But for us, there is one God, the Father, by whom all things were created, and for whom we live. And there is one Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom all things were created, and through whom we live. That's why we're here. You may be seated. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this clear and concise answer, wrapped up in one verse. Lord, I pray that we would make this a declaration over our lives. We would take this and make this who we are today. Lord, I pray that if there's anybody here that maybe still isn't sure about this whole Jesus thing, I pray that they would honestly ask themselves, why am I here? And you would uh, create in them a, a stirring and a restlessness that they cannot come up with any other answer other than you. And Lord, I pray they would put their faith in Jesus Christ today. Those of us who have already done that but have forgotten what our purpose is, the answer to why we are here. I pray that this message, your words from your word today, would breathe new life into the lives that you have given to us, that we would seek to live the rest of our days out to glorify you. And we pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.